the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, you're either really happy or your hair is on fire over the Supreme Court's decision on affirmative action. Someone sent out a really fascinating, fabulous tweet. It reads, Justice Jackson makes the point that despite being 13% of the population, blacks only make up 5% of the lawyers. While true, despite being only 13% of the population, blacks make up 22% of the Supreme Court justices. That was retweeted by a friend of mine, Will Riley. He's a professor. He's many things. He is, your, your mind might be blown by the end of this conversation. So stay tuned. Welcome to the Michelle Tafoya Podcast. Glad you're with us. I have a feeling we're going to be talking about affirmative action for almost as long as we talked about the Dobbs decision and abortion. Today, couldn't have a better guest than Will Riley. He's a professor. I, I love reading people's Twitter descriptions of themselves because they write them themselves. It's kind of like writing your own gravestone the way you want people to see you. So Will Riley, and he's at Will underscore duh underscore beast 630. A college professor now. I am a former corporate executive, freedom writer, law student, and poor kid, man attracted to non-men. All right. Uh, and you can hear him on the Cut the Bull podcast. You've probably seen him on a million shows. We're lucky enough to have him here today to talk about affirmative action, what it means. And I'm going to tell you this because you may not see it right away, but the professor, Will Riley, is black. All right. So he's coming up next. In the meantime, let me tell you something, a big summer secret to good, healthy skin. Now, as always, you want to drink your water, right? You want to make sure you wear your sunscreen, all those important things. But Genucel can also help you. You can have products sent right to your door that are going to keep your skin nice and smooth. Um, they have stuff for under your puffy eye bags. They have a plant-based retinol product that is a super deep moisturizer that is made with, like I said, a plant extract that makes it perfectly safe and fine to use in the sun. It doesn't have those harsh effects of a lot of retinols. Now, if you go to genucel.com right now, slash Michelle, genucel.com slash Michelle, you can have access to this beautifully curated summer collection that will help all of the things that the summer sun wants to do to your skin. This is a limited time package. It includes Genucel's one of a kind, like I mentioned, their retinol super moisturizer, powerful plant extract alternative to retinol. So no harsh side effects, perfectly safe to use in the sun. Plus you'll get their classic skincare therapy for under eye bags and puffiness. I swear by it. And their concentrated vitamin C serum to nourish your skin for a visibly clear complexion that's going to stay bright and glowing all summer long. Genucel.com slash Michelle, G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com slash Michelle. If you go there now, just for the summer, every subscription order includes a customized summer spa gift, absolutely free. Also absolutely free for the summer package orders. You get their immediate effects. 
with immediate effects, your results are guaranteed in 12 hours or less or your money back. So not only is it free, but you get your money back if it doesn't work, which means you don't get any money back because it's free, but you get the idea. Don't wait. Genucel.com slash Michelle. Genucel.com slash Michelle. Genucel.com slash Michelle with one L, M-I-C-H-E-L-E. Will Riley is next. Will, welcome. You are joining the show on the day when the Supreme Court knocked down affirmative action, which I, I, some people seem startled or surprised. And yet a lot of people I know expected this decision. What was your reaction? Um, I wasn't really surprised. I expected Thomas to write the decision instead of Roberts. I, I always thought that would be kind of the crowning achievement of Justice Thomas's career when he took down affirmative action. And instead, you had kind of the guys, you know, passing the ball back and forth near the goal line. I mean, Thomas had the best line, but Roberts had the opinion. That was a little surprising. But the the decision itself, no, it didn't particularly surprise me. And I think this gets into how expectations become settled in your mind, even when they don't make a ton of sense. So we've had a fairly conservative court for a couple of years now. I mean, it's mm -hmm. about six to three. And so when things happened, like the Dobbs decision reversing Roe, like I wasn't all that amazed. Like I would expect these, it, to some extent, movement conservative in a few cases, but, you know, high IQ right wing justices to, you know, issue, issue some decisions like that. I think people are basically surprised just because the status quo of the court has been more to the left yeah. uh, for quite a long period of time. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, with just without rambling on, but I mean, just like when you think about the court, you think about civil rights decisions, gay rights, uh, Bostic, quote unquote, trans rights really being put in place without a lot of input from general society. And that that's the normal complaint about the judges, justices, judicial activism. And now, I mean, you're seeing to some extent the same thing from the other side. I mean, there, there was a real review of abortion rights. There's a real review of affirmative action that. I mean, in North Carolina, in Harvard, essentially ended the practice, at least yeah. those two policies. So I'm, I'm not surprised. I think there's going to be I mean, you now see why people vote kind of. I mean, like Trump or not, he put three of those justices on the court. Yeah. So you're now going to see from the left what you saw from the right for quite a while. I think it's a simple way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to just call it the MAGA court and so on and so forth. You said Clarence Thomas had the best line. Is it on the top of your head? Do you what well, are you referring I to? A couple of them. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big nerd and actually went to law school. So I read I looked at the opinion. I read through the footnotes. And I mean, mm -hmm. Thomas said quite a few things that were pretty piercing. I mean, one of them was that in the absence of any racial problems whatsoever, the political left would have to make some up to justify a good deal of their agenda. I mean, what he's doing here is talking about the odd idea that opposing large scale racial preferences for one group is itself a form of racism. Mm -hmm. And he's saying, well, no to the majority of this court, the kind of programs that are in place here, where you're evaluating the personalities, quote unquote, of Asian American university applicants, or where you have a, I believe it was a 345 point application advantage as a black man over an Asian, or in some cases, a Caucasian individual, um, that that's completely unfair. So the allegations of prejudice that are being brought to justify these policies in many cases aren't real at all. The policies themselves are the problem. I think he gave a better overview of that position than I've heard from anyone for a while. Hmm. And I mean, that's because this is this is Thomas's kind of bet noir. I mean, he's been Thomas and Scalia were kind of bizarro world. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's on some of this. 
I mean, they've been they made the same arguments for quite a long period of time. And now Thomas is in a position where what he thinks can have some impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right. Right. It, it really is interesting. I was looking at your Twitter feed. I, I, being on Twitter today is sort of a, something that can be very your head can just explode. Right. And, right. and my head almost did. You retweeted this, but you said satire or nah. <laughs> okay. It's this woman named Erica Marsh. And before I read her tweet, I want to read how she describes herself on her Twitter page. She says, proud Democrat, former field organizer to elect president Biden, volunteer for the Obama foundation and in parentheses, her pronouns, she, her, with a blue heart next to them. She tweeted about four hours from before we recorded here. Today's Supreme Court decision is a direct attack on black people. No black person will be able to succeed in a merit-based system, which is exactly why affirmative action-based programs were needed. Today's decision is a, in all caps, travesty, followed by three exclamation points. Let me just say that again. No black person will be able to succeed in a merit-based system. What the hell is she talking about? I mean, it's just that it's that low-key racism that you get. It, actually, that's pretty high-key, quote-unquote. Yeah, but it is. You, you, it's the kind I, of I honestly did think maybe this was a joke. It, it's crazy. Be, yeah. there, are, there are actually a lot, of, there are a lot of accounts on Twitter, like Erica Marsh and Sayura Rao. Uh, for that matter, Angela Bell Camino is actually pretty fun to spar with and doesn't take herself all that seriously, but that are, I think, intentionally right on the edge of satire. Um, and that, that's kind of their brand. So I don't, okay. I don't know if that was totally believed, but the reality is that as an academic social scientist, you do see this, this attitude a fair amount on the, the U.S. political left. Mm-hmm. And there was a study that came out a few years ago that found that Leftists and liberals and only this group literally dumb down how they talk when they speak to black people. So when they speak normally to other sort of upper middle class, mostly white audiences, they talk like you and I will today, like normal people. When they talk to black people, there's a lot of yo, bro, you can go do it. You go get it. Haas. You know, and I, I thought that was interesting. You obviously you see that in day to day practical life. You see this sometimes with women in business, too. So. This it didn't surprise me. And there's actually kind of a deeper conversation there to some extent. I mean, I, I think in potential terms, the, the large human groups are pretty much equal. The reality is that one of the reasons affirmative action exists is that there are massive differences in test score and even IQ scoring between groups right now. Now, in political science, where we look around the world, it would be hard to convince me that means a lot, as I said, about genetics or something like this. 
you regularly see national IQs. I mean, Albania, I think, was 79 until pretty recently that differ dramatically and that that move up and down as the quality of education changes and so on. But okay. in the, the current moment, I mean, like the black SAT score is about 950. Hispanics are a little better, about 970, okay. 964, I think. Natives are actually worse, 926. So you've got those three groups, and you can attribute this to anything from racism to culture, which would be my take, some of that caused by past racism. But you have to, you have to hit the books in a language you speak, you know, to be able to do well on the test. But you've got whites. Whites are kind of in the middle, as that group often is when you look at these kind of stats, about 1,100. And then you have Asians who are, forgive me, kicking everybody's ass, who are getting yeah. a 1250 average SAT, 1229 uh, last year after the pandemic. That was the worst in almost a decade. Terrible performance. Terrible. Mothers, mothers were ashamed. Yes. But I mean, so you have almost three different groups of students. I mean, you have Asians and probably Indians, Nigerians, Jewish Americans up here. Then you have just white guys, regular middle-class white guys from most of this great country. And then you have three large groups of minority applicants. So if you have purely merit admissions, I, I don't know if a lot of people are aware of what that's going to look like. I mean, Harvard's going to be maybe 45% Asian, 15% Jewish American. I'm fine with this, by the way. Those are the best competitors. But another 10% maybe Indian and West African, then the rest white. Uh, it'd be about 1% American black. Okay. So on the one hand, Marsha's comment is just idiotic and racist. But on the other hand, it does reflect what we temporarily have now. We've had 60 years of this system, where as a minority student, you were to some extent aware, talking to my friends 15 years ago, that you didn't have to study as hard. And the board scores reflect that. I mean, there's there's a big difference between a nine. You didn't have to study as hard? Well, yeah. I mean, of, one of the things that always surprises me when people are talking about anything from what makes relationships work on Twitter to whether affirmative action has effects in the academic literature, a lot of people seem kind of oblivious to the fact that people know what's going on around them. So, yeah, I mean, as a as a kid that went to a functioning, mostly Latino and black school, yeah, people were very aware that to get into the University of Illinois, you had a better chance as a black guy or a Latina than you did as like your white buddy from the team. So, I mean, I, I can't help but imagine that that affects study rates. And in fact, you know, everything I've seen indicates that uh, black Americans study about a third as much as Asians. I guess that would break down to about half as much as whites. So whether or not you think there's some tiny effect of racism or even biogenetics on potential, I don't really. That's that's the that's the elephant in the room. Like if you studied twice as much for tests, you would do better on tests. This, this really isn't rocket science. Well, right. I, mean, I, I think people <laughs> knew this for quite a while. So using it as an advantage then and knowing that they were going to get these extra points on their application score, or whatever you want to call it, by virtue of the boxes they were going to check, which I, I, it, I don't know, it all seems so weird to me and so contrary to what, what's just common sense, which is that if you earn your way into anything, whether it's a school, whether it's a whatever, you've earned your way in. So... Mm -hmm. I, I don't know why, if if this, in fact, if affirmative action means we have held people of color to lower standards, we're okay with that? Yeah, I mean, the, the short answer, well, this is why the judges, the justices, Roberts and Scalia and so, sorry, Roberts and Thomas, it's been a long trip back. I think we discussed it before the show. Yes. But this is why they were so scathing in this opinion, I think. Like, it's very, very difficult to justify the current affirmative action system in the United States. 
where, for example, Arab Americans and Egyptians count as Caucasians or count as whites, uh, but Hispanics, including recent immigrants from these very stable middle class families, count as members of a minority group, you know, unless they're Brazilians who speak Portuguese, because the definition is still that old, archaic Spanish speaking. Yeah. So, I mean, when you actually look at this, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But, yeah, in practice, most Americans in leadership roles have been very comfortable holding people to different standards for a while. And it, it's worth looking at what those standards are. I mean, we we frequently hear these canards like affirmative action primarily benefits white women. What that means in practice is that men and women, there's about a 30 point gap because there's still a higher male score on the mathematical portion of the test. Women are killing the men on the verbal portion of the test. But there's a slight board score gap between men and women. So if you give the lower scoring group in each case an advantage equivalent to the amount they're underscoring, a large number of women would get a 20 point boost or whatever that case might be during college application. But that, that's just a meaningless kind of term of art. The largest individual beneficiaries of affirmative action are clearly black and Hispanic applicants. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I forget the exact authors of this book, but in uh, 1999 and again in 2012, and this, this was mismatch. I've, I read this one recently, but people have been able to look at, you know, the size of that advantage, just like what's the average SAT for an entering Harvard or Yale student year one across each racial group. And last I looked at the top 10 or so colleges, the advantage was 340 roughly points if you were black, uh, close to 200 if you were Latino. So, yeah, th that's what's been in play for some time, where if you are an intelligent black student who is also an athlete, you get a 1290 SAT, you have about the same chance of getting into Harvard as very bluntly an Asian or a white guy with a 1590. We recently mm -hmm. saw a case where a young Asian American gentleman this became a national story because it was so ridiculous. Had a 1590 SAT, varsity athlete, student leader, applied to something like the nation's top 10 colleges. Family was able to pay for that and was rejected by all of them. Yeah. Ended up going to Georgia Tech. And this started trending because people started pointing out, you know, in almost any other group, this would not have happened. There, this right. is mathematically, that's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. The odds are one in 18 million or whatever they were worked out to be. So, yes, we have been comfortable with that system for quite a while. Are you comfortable with it? Not really. My So my one defense of affirmative action would be that, I mean, I've taught in college. And in fact, I've been an executive. I've been, for example, held the ombudsman position at my university. I haven't been the president of a college or anything like that. But I've, done, I've had these roles, and I'm tenured as a professor. I've had fairly serious positions in higher ed for a while. And KSU is pretty good when it comes to this. UK is pretty good when it comes to this. Not a lot of, lot of cheating. You know, there might be some banter between fans of the schools in my small state. But I mean... At, at very many colleges, including my alma mater, the majority of students don't just get in. I think that's the one caveat that has to be made here. I mean, you look at these massive legacy programs. So, I mean, if you look at some of the quote unquote eating club schools like Princeton, Stanford, 20% of the student body are people whose father and grandfather attended the school. I might be off by a percentage point or two there, but it's, it's quite close to that. The the alumni or the, the children, sorry, of faculty members, coaches, and now anyone on the staff. So the assistant dean of diversity education also receives something like a 200 point boost. Maybe not the black edge, but the Latino edge, for example, when it comes to, to application. You have 8% of the typical Big Ten or SEC schools made up of varsity athletes. 
And we're, we're not just talking about men's basketball, women's basketball, something that might be a revenue producer. I mean, crew is a sport at most colleges. Right. I don't mean to make fun of it, but if you enjoy rowing with your friends and you've done that since your sophomore year of high school, should you get a 200-point bonus boost when you, you apply to a good school? Probably not. So I look at affirmative action in the context of all of this. And I guess my point is it would be very hard for me to defend large boost affirmative action. I'm actually not going to. Don't think it's ethical, bluntly. But uh, my preference would be for total merit. Like, I think the whole idea of a college admissions office is a joke. When people talk about, you know, my profession, I'm going into admissions. How can we figure out which kids are the best? All you have to do to admit people to college is weight grades at 50%. And you still get plenty of minorities if you did that, by the way. Test scores at 50%. Maybe give a 50-point bonus to things like performing musicians for the school, something like that. And that's it. That's that's your whole system. But nobody wants to do that. By now, there's an entrenched bureaucracy that opposes that. All of the various racial grift organizations clearly oppose that, so on. But I would get rid of all of it. I would The legacies, you know, your dad can still give money to the university. And if not, they just won't get a new marble bench out in front of the men's quadrangle. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. let's some poor kid from Appalachia instead. Yeah, well, right. I mean, you know, J.D. Vance is a good example of a poor kid from Appalachia who kind of turned his life around and, and made something of himself. I, I don't know if people are fans of J.D. Vance or not, but he is an example of that. There are plenty of examples of that. So the president comes out and says, this is bad. This is wrong. It can't be the last word was his phrase. But isn't the Supreme Court kind of the final arbiter of these kinds of decisions? Yeah, it really is the last word Biden just didn't <laughs> I mean, like. What, is there an executive action that he could sign that could undo this? Probably not. I'd, I'd have to think back to like Civ Pro 2 in law school or like cases I read through a couple of years after that. Um, but my offhand impression as someone who does have a professional background in the field is no. Yeah. I mean, if the Supreme Court, an executive order wouldn't work. If anything, if nothing else, that could be overturned by the next Republican president, which is you know something we're likely to have in place in a couple of years. You know, So to really make sweeping change that would bring affirmative action back, I mean, you'd probably need a congressional, a congressionally passed law signed by the president saying, you know, the system that we have in the USA is a system of racial preferences. Uh, I think there's a 0% chance that that's going to get through the House that we have right now under McCarthy. Right. And I will say, uh, large boost affirmative action is really unpopular. It's opposed by, if I have this correct, 53% of blacks. Wow. I mean, 60% of Hispanics. The huge majority of people believe that you should just go out and compete. Yeah. And it's it's worth noting that with these with the scores that I've given, minority affirmative action recipients aren't stupid. I mean, I, I don't like the political left in the USA, spar with it a lot, but I'm not a huge fan of the quote-unquote alt-right either. Right. So when you sure. talk about like the average Big Ten black SAT score, it's like 1090. You're not talking about knuckle-dragging idiots. I mean, you're talking about people that would just be going to Western Michigan absent these programs. Right. So the the large majority of people in the country don't really have a vested interest in this. The reason affirmative action is such a high intensity issue is that it kind of affects the cool kids. Like the schools that really practice large boost are the Ivies, the Pac-10 out in the golden land where everyone wants to go. I mean, the SEC a little bit, especially you can play some football. 
But I mean, like the Patriot League, all of these upper end academic and athletic conferences where people really dream about going. Not your life, frankly. I mean, I went to Southern Illinois and Illinois, both of which are great, like top 150 schools, by the way, and very fun. But I mean, for the for the kids who might be considering this. But I mean, nobody really dreams about going to Western Michigan their entire life. Right. So there's there's this huge kind of vested interest pool of alumni and high performing students and other people who really care about this issue. And that's why we talk about it. Um, I, I guess my point here would just be almost all these people are still going to go to college. Like if you pulled yourself out of a barrio neighborhood and you got a 1050 and you can pay for your first two years, like you're going to go somewhere. Right. It'll just be, you know, San Jose State instead of Cal Berkeley. Right. And uh, the, uh, the upside of that, though, is you'll actually graduate from San Jose State. That's the thing. That's the other part of this is that I, I, I want to make sure that I'm very delicate with my words here, Will, but <laughs> okay. aren't there a, a lot of situations where kids drop out of these super high achieving schools, these schools with the great reputations and the great programs because they're not prepared? Yeah, I mean, that happens all the time. It's like any other hyper competitive situation. Um, I remember a friend of mine, a Caucasian guy, this is back in high school, really, was a lacrosse player for a wealthy school in the area. It's called Matea Valley, I believe. Okay. Or Wabansi Valley. Matea wasn't around at the time. But, I mean, he tried out for his school's basketball team. And the review from the coaches and the other players was like, you're a great athlete, but you suck at this sport. I mean, it was just like, we don't, we don't really see a reason to bring you on for this. You go, do, go do what you normally do. Right. And that is a very typical attitude in competitive arenas. Um, you know, med school registrars and Marine Corps master sergeants and so on aren't known for being sympathetic and kindly. So I guess what I'm kind of ramblingly getting to here is that what you just described is what's called the mis mismatch hypothesis, mm -hmm. where if you take people that are pretty good and you put them in highly intense environments where everyone's very good, they're going to do very badly. So the typical black Harvard applicant that I mentioned, who's got a 1290, excellent list of extracurriculars, probably would do very well at, say, Illinois or Michigan, half step down. If he's going to Harvard and he's going into a high performing field, something like a STEM field or she, right. everyone else is going to have a 1550. It's going to be a level of competition that you're simply not prepared to match up against. Right. It would be the equivalent of being someone who is a skilled athlete, but in another sport trying out for a good high school or a collegiate basketball team. It's obvious that you know what you're doing at some level. You could dominate an ordinary person at what you're doing, but you're simply not suited to be here. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the, there are two things that happen very often with affirmative action applicants. And uh, bluntly, I've never cared enough to look, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if this happens with legacies as well. Oh, that'd be interesting, have, yeah. Where they, yeah, I think what they would probably do is settle into Greek life, partying, quote unquote, hookup <laughs> culture. Like, I mean, just, just thinking back to college, like, you know, get the gentleman's C and get out and, you know, run daddy's car dealership. But with the affirmative action kids, it matters a little more because you do want to get people out of the hood and this, yeah, same thing. But I mean, what you see is one of two things. One, people just fail. You take the kid with the 1300, you put them up against the kids with the 1600s and they don't really grade on curves that often, you know, you just. You, you get all F, D's and F's. Yeah. The second thing that would happen is that you're smart and canny enough not to do that. So you either move to a useless major where your uh, scores and GPA are competitive, or you start alleging that there's a problem with the system itself. So I guess there are actually three things, and you see all of these in affirmative action-heavy schools. One is just a very high dropout rate for, like, honorable, 
minority students is especially high among Latino Latinas, I mean, Hispanic women, for whatever reason. Okay. But like okay. people just go in, they're ready to compete. They're a little behind the curve. They fail out. They do something else. The second thing you see is a lot of activism against whatever the standard is. So, I mean, like there's a whole anti-test movement, like more than a score. And that started yes. not where yeah. you might think in hood high schools. That started in elite colleges. So what people are saying is that their grades and their test scores don't reflect them. You should count other things when you're looking at how much a student contributes, like participation in black sororities is something I've heard mentioned. So that's, that's number two. And number three is just you go major in BS. A friend of mine who's a professor of black studies and won't name him, and that's not always a BS field. You have some guys in there actually studying Africa. But one of the things he said that really just struck me as kind of Machiavellian young executive stuff was one of the places where we recruit students is black people in more difficult majors. Because we understand that a lot of them aren't going to be doing well. So the pitch can be something like, hey, want to come home? And that's very, very receptive. Or so that's something people are very, very receptive to. And although this is never said explicitly by this guy, it's sort of a buried element in that is, you know you're failing because they're racist, right? Like most people don't know the actual SAT breakdown of their university as like some beer drinking freshman. So it's very easy to say that in either the category two or category three that I just broke down here. You know, the real problem is that they don't want us here. Now, that's almost never true. In fact, they're bending the standards by 300 points to let you in. But it's something that's easy to believe. Well, all this crap is easy to believe. You're a victim. You're oppressed. There's an oppressive mm -hmm. class and an oppressed class. And it's and it's it's the easy way to let people off the hook, isn't it? Isn't it just the easiest way to say, see, this is why you're not succeeding? Uh, I'm trying to remember now who oh, we had on Bob Woodson, the great civil rights oh, yeah. activist the other day. And he said, giving people an excuse for their failure is is like lethal. You know, and, and he said it obviously much better than I just put it, but he's right. I don't I this is to me, it's so clear and, and I'm not nearly as smart as you. But to me, it's just so crystal clear that you're handing over an excuse. This is why you can't make it. It's because somebody else doesn't want you to. You're being oppressed. You're a victim. Uh, they're trying to erase your history. CRT, they're banning that. And that just tells you what they think of you. And like Gavin Newsom tweeted today, they're trying to erase your history. They want to ban you. And now they want to keep you out of college. I mean, it just, I'm just wondering what percentage of the American population truly buys that bullshit. Probably a very small one. I mean, so like one of the things I've started doing recently is using, I have a pretty large uh, social media presence. It's mm -hmm. about 100,000 people just on Twitter. I also have uh, survey monkey links to, you know, actual research documents I put together and so on. So one of the things that I've started doing, either just on social media or with a connection to something else, is totally anonymously asking very large groups of people how many of them actually believe in, like, these liberal canards. So one of them the other day, well, now it's a couple weeks back, was, can you be a woman and have a penis? And I expected that. I think I mentioned this when you did cut the bull with myself yeah. and Charles and Shamika. Yeah. You and Shamika were both like, what? But I mean, one of the big pitches of quote unquote trans liberation is, you know, some men have vaginas, some women have penises. And I just asked about it. Like, can you be a woman and have a nine inch penis? You know, politely worded. But that was the question. And I expected that, you know, 
my audience is kind of bro leaning, but you know, everyone's feminist fiance is on the page. I expected there to be about a 30% vote for yes. The vote for yes, if I recall correctly, was 2%. So in a totally anonymous setting where you're in an anonymous poll, you go to an anonymous link, nobody believes most of this stuff. And I think that that's a key fact in the debates we're having because almost everyone's lying. And this extends to a lot of other things. I mean, I mentioned the absurd social media conversation about dating where people will say things like, women don't want rich men. We want to make it ours. And it's like, well, you know, of course, women are hustling hard these days, but that's just not true. We all know it's not. (laughs) We're not going to turn down a guy because he's rich. Let's be honest. Yeah, but I mean, like one of the questions was for men, do you want slightly younger women that are beautiful? And all these guys were like, I just want someone that loves me. And it's like, shut the up, dog. Like, that's obviously not true. So, I mean, like with a lot of this stuff, it's just everyone feels they have to lie socially. This has probably always been the case. I mean, if you asked both men and women if they were virgins before marriage through the 1930s or 40s without focusing on this one topic, but response rates were extraordinarily high and they didn't match, let's say, rates of pregnancy in a bunch of the states, especially in the South. So it's just, you know, people feel that they have to conform to social convention. Um, That is what it is. I think it's stupid myself. In fact, a great advantage in life and in business I found is just not like saying like, no, I don't believe in that. I'm going to be polite about it, but I'm not going to waste my time. I won't waste yours. No, that's not true. But in in the case of affirmative action, how many people actually believe their black buddies are oppressed or tests don't measure anything? I would say that's probably about the same two to five percent. Okay. But this is something that's really become part of the national conversation. Yes, I mean, it has. And we're, we're really talking along a couple of track lines now, but just to bring up a new one. I mean, the entire basis of, say, Ibram Kendi or Robin DeAngelo's argument is that any gap in performance indicates racism. And maybe because I'm a black guy, I mean, I'll, I'll just say bluntly, that's obviously not true. There are cultural problems in the black community, just as there are issues like suicide, no D in white communities. Yeah. We study a third as much as Asians. It's clearly not true. Even if you move away from cultural stuff, if you're looking at ability to prep a son or daughter for the tests or retention of wealth, the modal average age for a black person in America is 27. For whites, it's 58. This is something I mention in every speech, just because it's such an obvious non-threatening, non-offensive, just random mathematical difference between groups. But when you look at crime rate, who has more money, it's idiotic to compare a 20-year-old guy to a 50-year-old guy and say, 20-year-old guy's poor. We're doing some things wrong in this country. Seize the police a little bit more. Like, no, there may be a 5% residual, as we would call it, of racism once you adjust for that and some other things. But to just call the gap racist is incredibly foolish. So- yeah, I don't know how many people believe that, but I know a lot of them say it publicly. I also find uh, Robin DeAngelis very amusing because or the existence of her her school of thought coming from her, because oh, yeah. on the one hand, you've got these debate coaches and judges saying, if you're white, don't you dare come and talk about the black experience in front of me. And yet here's Robin DeAngelis and she has this best selling book and makes a zillion dollars being a white woman talking about how blacks are oppressed. So I, I, I a little aside there on a tangent, but before I let you go, you said you, we, we are in a moment. I feel like, God, I hope it's a moment. Um, but we're at a time where this, this sense, maybe it's just louder. Maybe it's always been there and it's it's the minority, but they're so vocal now and they're so amplified on television and on social media and on streaming every place they can be amplified. But it seems to me the further away we get from the original sin of slavery, oh, yeah. the more pronounced and pissed off 
people are about it. And we've made such strides in this country and people have sacrificed their lives for this, this change. And, uh, you know, there's some people, yeah, Jim Crow was awful. All of these things were awful. We know that we've said that we teach it. Gavin Newsom. Yes, we do. We teach it. Mm -hmm. Um, but why is it so pronounced right now? Or am I imagining it? No, you're not imagining it at all. So, I mean, first of all, like what you're describing is a measurable phenomenon in social science that uh, my casual buddy Zach Goldberg has called the Great Awakening. So between 2012 and today, rough spitballing there, but like the Times, the Post, I'll throw in the Tribune as a Midwesterner, the major papers in the country increased their mention of provocative terms targeted at both whites and blacks by like 4,000 percent. It's a good rough estimate. I mean, things like white supremacy, so on, uh, began to be seen really for the first time since the 20s when it existed. Um, you even saw the changing of names. So the Tulsa race riot, which began when a group of well-armed black men who mostly worked in the Black Wall Street district got into a fight with a group of well-armed white men that became renamed the Tulsa race massacre. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think the whites were in fault for the riot, but simply to say, the, the presentation now is well, the minority group can do no wrong. You know, this was this was all unprovoked killing. It had nothing to do with the gunfight that launched it. Many of these takes, like the 1619 Project's takes, by the way, Revolutionary War was fought to preserve slavery. They're fantastically wrong. Yes. They're historically illiterate and stupid. Yes. Um, and that's why people oppose them. It's not that anyone opposes teaching about slavery. Although I would teach that in the context of the abuse of the Chinese laborers who built the cross-country railroad and the defeat of the Native Americans with heroes, quote unquote, white and red on both sides. And, you know, the oppression of the Mexican braceros and so on. I mean, like most people were slaves or serfs until pretty recently. Like when did women get the right to vote? 1920, 1920, 1920. Yeah. So, I mean, like prior to the early, see, I didn't even exactly know that sexism <laughs> it's all around us. But like <laughs> until the early modern era, everyone would have struck everyone alive today as an evil bigot. And it's amazing how true this is. I mean, I recently read uh, the great new biography of Martin Luther King, King by, uh, what's his name? Jonathan E. have it on my bookshelf. And one of the things he mentioned in passing was that King was a radical homophobe. Uh, he had a gossip column for, not a gossip, but advice column for men for Ebony Magazine. And a guy wrote in and said, I'm gay. What should I do? And King was like, you're not really gay. And so it's kind of a white thing. You need to go to therapy, serious therapy. He stopped just short of recommending you know, electroshock and so on. But it's basically like, you need to get you know kicked in the head until you lose those gay thoughts. Yeah. And people commenting on this in, in the era said, well, you know, Reverend King is very sympathetic to this young fellow. It, not in today's terms, because Correct. nobody would be in today's terms. There were right. no trans people out openly in 1954. The, the feminist movement, really, if you think back to Greer and Steinem and so on, was, was just about to begin the first core wave. I started the second. But anyway, blah, blah, blah. Yes, slavery should be taught. Everyone wants to. I, I feel it kind of lost the thread here. What was the initial question? <laughs> Why are we here in 2023 oh. so sudsed up about oh. this stuff it, like it happened yesterday? That's yeah. OK, so the direct answer is what I started talking about. The uh, the great awakening is the practical reason the media focuses on it constantly. Okay. The average black person or urban white liberal believes this is skeptic research center 2021 that between 1000 and 10,000 unarmed black men and presumably close to 20, 30,000 unarmed men total are, are gunned down by the police every year. Yeah, I mean, so these are these are common perspectives in the country. 
Why have they been allowed to become common? I think because a lot of people have a vested interest in racism continuing. I mean, this is one of those takes that's almost movement conservative, but I think it's just correct from basically a business perspective. You have these massive organizations. I mean, Jesse Jackson's rainbow push never went anywhere. Rakes in probably eight figures a year. So again, we're back. We're back to follow the money, aren't we? Yeah, it's always uh, what's in law school. Qui bono. My Latin might be a little off, but who benefits? Who's on the take? Who's getting paid for this? Uh, Black Lives Matter kind of. I was, I was going to bring up Al Sharpton, National Action Network, yeah. a couple others. But like you can just jump to the new lions. Uh, Black Lives Matter. This is The Economist two years ago. Just the most straight faced article ever written. The numbers have never been changed. Took in about eleven billion dollars with a B during the primary period of BLM activism, like 2020 and 2021, I believe, before this article came out. And there's never been an audit as to where this money went. Yeah. I mean, BLM, GNF, uh, Black Lives Matter, Global Network Foundation alone, Patrice Kalor's group, took in about $100 million in one year, unaudited. And that's the same year the founder of the group, coincidentally, bought five mansions. Yeah. That at least, that at least made the press. But so why do we hear so much about this? Well, because... If you add in departments of diversity in business, if you add in DEI and academia, probably 5% of the capitalist economy is tied into this idea that we need to manage the different groups in society, men and women and so on. So that's that's why I think that's the answer. There's not really there's uh, there's no response to that that I would really accept because, I mean, I know that people value money. That is true. And and uh, it, it's been sort of a theme for me. Uh, earlier, we spoke with a, a gay rights activist. He was part of the whole movement back in the 90s and the aughts. And yeah. and he said, now we're we're slicing and dicing the group so that we don't just have LGB. We have a whole freaking alphabet. And it's because a lot of the, the things I was fighting for got resolved. Yeah. But we needed the grift to go on. So here we are. And not to mention the medical community benefiting from taking breasts out of small young girls. Uh, yeah. But I could I digress once again. Well, it's been fantastic having you. I, I could listen to you all day. I learn a lot. I I would love to be your student. Can I like come audit a course? Yeah, you totally can. I, I actually do most of my classes. There's a link to Zoom or Riverside for them so people can check in. Uh, if you ever wanted to virtually speak to a class, students would love that. We're doing. I, I can't. I can't do better than you're doing, man. I. I really can't. So I. I'm not gonna. I. And by the way, I say man a lot. I just want people to know that. And people have said man to me, like when I used to do post game interviews. Well, like a, a guy would say, you know, man, I thought on that one play, and people would tweet, he called her man. It's like, no, it's just a turn of phrase. It's. I'm not, uh, I'm not offended. I'm glad. I'm glad, because you are a man. Uh, yeah, I am. I'm an adult human male, actually. So yeah, not, I wouldn't really be bothered by that at all. But, I no, would I, say I, it to an adult f human female, too. I would say it. No, I mean, I've, I've definitely called female friends bro in the past, doing things like, you know, how'd you miss that, bro? And I've actually had people get very offended by it. Oh, dear God. But I've, I've also had people feel very complimented, like, oh, I'm I, one of the guys. They're I love really, it. My, really my, my daughter calls me dude. And I love yeah. that. I cherish every time she calls me dude. I feel like I'm in with my daughter. That's awesome. Hey, Will, again, yeah, I am going to check out your class online. I am. You're just so fun to listen to. And I, I, what a perfect day to talk to you. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. And we'll do it again. Well, thanks a lot for having me. Great to come on. Yeah, this is the Michelle Tafoya podcast. Everyone, thanks for listening. As always, be brave and do some good out there. See you next time. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.